Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. It is uh, 6.01. We're going to be um, starting here. So um, Strength to Strength was started by Patrick Matthews um, under a different name. And recently we got uh, some more um, people to assist with the um, um, organization of this. And one of those is uh, Wendell Martin. And uh, Wendell is on here today. So uh, he's going to be moderating and... Um, Wendell, uh, go ahead. Okay, thank you, Glenn, and welcome to you all. Good to have you here. I see we have just now 30 participants, so 31. Yeah, good to have you here this morning and meeting in this way. Uh, why, don't we, why don't we start with prayer? Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for a new day. Thank you for this opportunity to gather here in this way, um, to, to meet together virtually. Thank you for um, yeah, this platform we can do this. And I just pray your blessing on this time. I pray you would be with Brother Philip and that you would um, just inspire him. And I pray that what we hear and share together here can be a way of building your kingdom. Um, we want you to be glorified, and we want to just this be a way to press into your kingdom. May your kingdom come and your will be done. We pray, pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, yeah, we're happy to have uh, Philip Hess here sharing today. And I believe he is going to share on the family and just looking here at my screen. Yeah, looking forward to hear what you have to share, Philip. You can take it away. Um, I guess one thing, maybe you didn't, I'm not sure if you're prepared for this or not, but we often have a time for question and response after you share what you've prepared. And, and if you're good with that, we'll plan to do that if, you, if we have time. Blessings. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning and uh, good to be sharing together. So I have a burden on my heart that I'd like to share about, and that is about our families, about passing on the faith, about having raising godly families in an ungodly age. We live in an era that has seen more change than any era in history prior to this on so many levels. And just the last century, many, many things that were taken for granted as far as uh, human living have been vanishing away, whether it be the permanence of marriage, the, the um, permanence of the nuclear family, the sexual revolution, which uh, gained a tremendous amount of speed in the 1960s, Western civilization has in many ways come unraveled and is still unraveling. And how did this happen? The process of change from what has been called the Christian West, or at least one that had called itself Christian, had a Christian heritage to one that is uh, a largely post-Christian society um, in which Christian faith, people that call themselves Christians are rapidly becoming a minority and losing any kind of influence in the public sphere. It's called secularization. Just um, basically a move to a godless society. And there's been a lot of debate about what social forces have caused this change. So I have this, a book here called How the West Really Lost God. It looks like it's possibly in reverse for you there. Um, written by a lady named Mary Eberstadt. And she tackles this problem and talks about the, a number of theories of how the West became secularized. She talks about the enlightenment, about scientific progress. Um, people give, speak of these as things that have changed the West from a, a Christian culture. And when I use that term, I'm speaking about a culture that believes in God and believes in Jesus, whether or not it's genuine Christianity. 
to a post-Christian one. And she finds all the traditional explanations inadequate. Some people say the world wars did cause secularization. Some people say that wealth caused secularization. Um, but for various reasons, each of these explanations fall short. And of course, they all add something to the picture. Um, you know, war causes people to um, doubt the existence of God as they see the atrocities that happen. Um, wealth sometimes causes people to not feel that they need God anymore. The Enlightenment brought in lots of new ideas. But there's also many instances where the exact opposite happened. Sometimes war, for example, has caused people to turn to God. Um, there's been times and places when it was the wealthy people who were more religious than the common or the poor people. But there is one thing uh, running through the last century that is closely associated with secularization, closely associated with the move away from God. And that is the collapse of the family. Now, I'm going to go ahead and start sharing my screen here. And Mary Eberstadt pictures this as a double helix. Just start my slideshow. So I think we're all familiar with with DNA. It's a double spiral joined together by strong bonds. And and she sees faith and family as this double helix. So it, it would be obvious to all of us that faith reinforces family. If you have a strong faith in God, because in serving God, you're going to promote and create strong families. It's obvious that, that faith reinforces the family unit. But what's not so obvious is that it appears that family also reinforces faith. There is something about nuclear families that pushes people toward belief in God. And that is probably the most uh, revolutionary piece of her book. She examines the evidence for that. Um, it's The case is, is made not by showing any bulletproof piece of evidence, but by showing many small pieces that would lead to the idea that being in families somehow helps people connect with God. And that has profound implications for both the church as a family and for our view of the nuclear family, the family unit of father and mother and children. So what about family would tend toward helping people to faith in God? I want to look at that question for a few minutes. Children make us dependent on God. So when we have children, uh, we quickly discover that we're not as big as we think we are. We have, it brings out our faults sometimes in raising our children. Uh, maybe there's financial needs. Um, maybe there's just things we don't know what to do with. And so the children often make us cry out to God. Children also arouse emotions in us that teach us to love. So we can all be selfish, but if you have no one to express deep love and feel a deep connection to, you don't learn about the kind of love that, that God has in the same way, at least not as naturally. So the bond between a parent and a child will make a parent sacrifice himself or herself for their child, even if they're not a Christian. There's a very deep kind of love and ownership there that teaches us what love is like. Children teach us about sacrificial love. You know, we have to uh, give up a lot to care for them, to be unselfish as we raise our children. So this is a way that having a family leads us toward faith in God.
participating in the creative process causes a reflection on the big questions of life. What does this all mean? Why am I here? Who am I? Something about the process of bringing children into the world causes us to think about those things often in a, in a new way. Participating in the creative process, in other words, giving birth and rearing children, causes amazement about God's creation. It gives us reason to reflect about God and, and the things that he has designed. There's a famous example of a man who's an atheist who said he came to faith in God simply by studying his newborn daughter's ear and being amazed by the intricate design of her ear. Strong families reflect values that lead to understanding God, such as fatherhood. So God is a father. God ha has a son, Jesus Christ. We've been adopted into that family. For people who were raised outside of a nuclear family, maybe they were raised in single parent families, maybe not raised in families at all, their understanding of God's family can be limited and their understanding of God as a loving father figure, if they did not have one, is hampered. Of course, God can overcome those things in each of us, but observing strong families and how they work together is a great help in that process. So the family is, on, is under attack as never before in our society today. This comes in all kinds of avenues. Um, Part of that is the fact that the government, governments of many countries have come to a place where they want to replace the family and provide functions that families historically provided. So people need each other. And in historic societies, many of the needs of life from birth to death were provided by families. But now in our uh, secularized Western culture, um, there's daycare, the government provides economic support. When people get to the end of life, they can go into nursing homes or assisted living. Government takes care of people through social security. People take care of themselves through insurance. And so people no longer need family in the same way just to survive and just to, to have their basic needs taken care of. So the a socialist state or a state that provides surrogates for many family functions ends up weakening the strength of the family. In the process, it weakens the Christian faith. So I'll give you a little example of that. During his campaign for re-election, President Obama ran television ads featuring a woman named Julia, and he was trying to show that this Julia is be being taken care of by the government, and this is a good thing. Um, and you'll notice that Julia doesn't need a husband. He's he never comes up because the government is taking care of her. And it didn't take long before his ads drew a lot of criticism and were very unpopular, so they were discontinued. Okay, so just a couple snapshots out of this. When Julia is reaching college age, the government is um, subsidizing her college education. During college, she needs a surgery. Fortunately, she's on government health care that has been extended until she's 26, so she's taken care of. Um, later on in life, after she started a career, she decides to have a child. She benefits from maternal checkups, prenatal care, and free screenings under health care reform. This is the vision of the government caring for each individual. Uh, eventually, her son is ready to start kindergarten. The public schools and teachers provided by the government help her school her son. And so she's able to live a very independent life, perhaps a lonely life, because the government is taking care of her needs. Another thing uh, that is a threat to the family is urbanization. Now, this is the reason I bring this because many, up is because many of us live in urban settings. And so we need to think very creatively about how we will 
not let urbanization lead to less religiosity. Of course, many of us have a, a vision for reaching out in cities. We don't necessarily think that just because urbanization can be a threat to Christianity, that that's a reason to not move there. But we need to be aware. Historically, urban areas have always been far less religious than rural areas. And it might not just be this uh, moving to the city itself or that choice that leads people away from God, but urbanization may be hard on natural families. And as families fall apart, secularization increases. Historically, small towns in the country had about equal birth rates. Large towns and cities had much lower birth rates. The family unit is no longer as important in the city. Church attendance and religiosity is much lower in cities on the average. The Industrial Revolution was hard on the family. Not only did it cause families to move to the cities, it took fathers out of the home. These are things that we must be aware of as threats and think creatively about how to compensate for them because many of us work in situations where we're not at home. How are we going to make up for not being there, working with our children on a daily basis? Eventually, mother would also begin working away from home, leading to the disintegration of the family. Okay, so... I went through that there just to talk about the fact that family and faith are connected. And it is also true that larger families tend to be more religious. Again, um, it's difficult to know the cause and effect of this. It could be that people who are religious have larger families. It could also be that larger families uh, push people toward God. But now I want to talk about uh, the history of contraception in the church and how it has led to the sexual revolution and on through the, the process of societal decay to where we are today under a severe amount of pressure to accept the homosexual agenda and all that goes along with that. Now, I realized that a lot of what I had to say may be controversial and maybe inconvenient, and I just ask you to have mercy on me. Um, as we think about these things, we can talk about them together and try to understand what God would have for us here. So I think that we can draw a straight line between the idea of unnatural contraception to the societal decay that has happened today. With the sexual revolution that is associated in the 1960s, the family is under attack as never before. Marriage is no longer permanent or seen as necessary. Many children are born out of wedlock, and there are many arrangements that are seen as acceptable alternatives to the family. How did this happen? Okay, so I want to start with Thinking about two families here, I just copied these from Christian Aid Ministries' website. And I'll read what they had to say about, about this one. In Romania, firewood prices are steadily increasing, and many people in poor rural areas wonder how they will stay warm this winter. Their options are limited. Romanian law limits the amount of firewood that can be cut and requires a permit to cut it, wood is available to buy, but it's unaffordable for many rural families. In some cases, natural gas would actually be cheaper than wood. Unfortunately, though, it's usually available only in cities and larger villages. To create a bit of heat in the bitter cold, some people save corn cobs, dried cow manure mixed with straw, sunflower stalks, or corn stalks. Many of them are able to heat only one room in their houses. They wear heavy clothing and pile on the blankets to stay warm. Ile, Julian, and his wife, Liliana, have 10 children. They live in rural southern Romania where jobs that provide a steady income are almost non-existent. However, Ile wants to do what he can to provide for his family. He does construction and other jobs when he gets a chance. Our staff in Romania offered the Julian family, the Julian family, some funds from the Warma Family Program for Firewood. This gift will help keep them warm for two or three months, depending on how cold the winter is. 
So there's a family with 10 children living in, in that house there, it would appear. And here's another one. For the new stove, Yosef and his wife in Romania received through the CAM Warma Family Program will be a great blessing this winter. It uses less firewood than their old stove, but still gives more heat. Yosef's wife also uses the stove to cook for her husband and 19 children. Like many Romanian fathers, Yosef struggles to find a steady job, but he takes daily work as he can find it. He thanks God and you for thinking about the needs of their family. So there's Yosef's family on that picture there. So it's obvious that these two families live in much more menial circumstances than most of us here in the United States. And they probably experience a lot more of what we would call hardship. So this begs a few questions. Didn't these people get the memo they didn't need to have so many children? Is it even responsible to have so many children in such poor circumstances? Didn't they consider that if they had so many children, they might be making a hardship for themselves and others? Here's a question. Couldn't they spread God's kingdom more effectively by having fewer children and thus have more time to spread the gospel? How do we relate to families around us that are needy? Are families welcomed in our churches? Are we glad for the birth of children? Or do we groan about extra help that's needed? Do we suggest sometimes to people that they shouldn't have more children? How can we be a family, a, a community that supports families as God intended us as churches to be? So, you know, there's a paradox about life. And that is our desire for comfort, our desire for ease, intention with the fact that the Christian life is, we are warned, is going to be difficult. And in fact, that's for our own good. So Paul says that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. We have to have tribulation to enter in. And that could come from trials and persecution. Most places in the world see more of that than we do here in the United States. But it could also be the hardships in life that God allows to come to try us and to refine us. So James comments on this. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So typo there, but count it all joy when you fall into various trials. I find that hard to do. As soon as I fall into a trial, instead of feeling joyful, I tend to quickly look for a way of escape and how I can get this trial behind me and go back to living in comfort. And yet we are told that we must through much tribulation inherit the kingdom. So how are we to think about this? Well, let's think about this in the light of family size. The primary reason that people limit their family size is for comfort and convenience. I just uh, don't want the effort and hardship of family. Now, of course, there are other reasons. We can discuss that later on. So I want to talk about the history of contraception or birth control. Now, how do we define this? Um, for the, the purpose of this video, I'm going to define this as unnatural birth control, um, using things that are not natural to us to prevent births. And there could be some dis discussion about whether about that, but some people do define it that way. So birth control has a long history. For thousands of years, people have wanted for various reasons to prevent pregnancy. And so they had nasty potions and crude concoctions uh, often inserted into women and crude barrier methods in an attempt to prevent births. Some people think that the word pharmakia in the New Testament 
translated in the King James as sorcery, includes, uh, we know it includes drugs. Many think it actually refers to contraceptive and abortive drugs, drugs to prevent having one from having children. That is debatable, it's, but there's some evidence of that. So basically, the, for 19 centuries, almost all of church history, there was strong teaching against artificial means to control birth. Uh, up through 1920, no Christian denomination had changed their teaching on that. So the Lambeth Conference is a conference that happens about every 10 years of Anglican bishops. And here's what they said in 1920. Speaking about birth control, we utter an emphatic warning against the use of unnatural means for the avoidance of conception, together with the grave dangers, physical, moral, and religious, thereby incurred, and against the evils with which the extension of such use threatens the race. In opposition to the teaching, which under the name of science and religion, encourages people in the deliberate cultivation of sexual union as an end in itself, in other words, enjoying the marital union without, while preventing having children, we steadfastly uphold what must always be regarded as the governing, governing considerations of Christian marriage. One is the primary purpose for which marriage exists, namely the continuation of the race through the gift and heritage of children. And the other is the paramount importance in married life of deliberal, deliberate and thoughtful self-control. So 1920, the Anglican Church made this statement, but it only took 10 years to reverse the decision. And isn't it ironic that what they had stated so plainly in 1920 became obsolete 10 years later? Some of that had to do with Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, reaching out to various Anglican bishops and convincing them of her views. There's a very direct connection between what happened in 1930 and Planned Parenthood. So in 1930, the Lambeth Conference convened again and passed Resolution 15. In those cases where there is such a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, and where there is a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, the conference agrees that other methods may be used, provided that this is done in the light of the same Christian principles. Okay, so you can use birth control if you have a good reason to. There was, of course, a reaction to that. The London Times of June 30, 1930, predicted that the Lambeth Conference would change the social and moral life of humanity. There was opposition. Walter Carey, Bishop of Bloemfontein, withdrew from the conference in protest and even sent a petition to the king on the subject. And this relaxing of contraception rules was timely, given that the latex condom had been invented a year earlier in 1929. There were other types of condoms before that year, but they were rather crude and inconvenient. The latex condom was a great leap forward in that technology. So where was the US at this time? Well, it's interesting, in 1873, there were there was a law passed called the Comstock Law, which generated a lot of state laws um, that enforced it in various states. And it had to do with um, literature and devices that were considered immoral, used for pornographic purposes or immoral purposes. And in their nets, they caught um, contraceptives. So in 1929, uh, a lady named Mary Dennett reviewed the laws that were standing in the states, and this is going to probably be surprising to you all, but I'll just read what she says. Uh, 24 states and Puerto Rico specifically penalize contraceptive knowledge in their obscenity laws. 23 states make it a crime to publish or advertise contraceptive information. 22 states included in their prohibition drugs and instruments for the prevention of con conception. 
11 states make it a crime to have in one's possession any inst instruction for contraception. 14 states make it a crime to tell anyone where or how contraceptive knowledge may be acquired. Six states prohibit the offer to assist in any method whatever which would lead to knowledge by which contraception might be accomplished. Eight states prohibit depositing in the post office any contraceptive information. One state, Colorado, pro prohibits the bringing into the state of any contraceptive knowledge. Four states have laws authorizing the search for and seizure of contraceptive instructions. Now, I don't know how well these laws were enforced and they stood on the books for a long time, probably with little enforcement, but it was not actually until 1965 that a Supreme Court decision repealed all existing Comstock laws. So after the Lambeth Conference of 1930, it didn't take long for the mainline Protestant churches to follow suit and also open the doors to contraception. The next Protestant group to sanction artificial birth control was the Federal Council of Churches in 1931, just the next year. That while the FCC endorsement triggered a revolt among its member denominations, by the end of the 1930s, opposition to birth control was fading away from the FCC constituency. Protestants outside the main line, namely fundamentalists, um, evangelical churches, non-denominational churches, continued to speak against birth control for a time, but opposition was gradually fading. And how did this happen? Well, um, by, pretty soon it became uh, even a moral imperative, some felt that birth control was necessary. In 1959, the New York Times, in the New York Times, Billy Graham emphasized that birth control was an answer to the terrifying and tragic problem of overpopulation, that there was nothing in scripture that barred its responsible use, and that the majority of Americans use contraception in any case, whether they be Protestants or Roman Catholics. So there was perhaps a lag between the church uh, reversing their stands and what people were actually doing. In the early, in early 1960, Christianity Today printed opinions pro and con. However, a major turning point in evangelical opinion came in 1966 when Lutheran John Montgomery came down strongly in favor of contraception. Evangelical leaders would frequently cite his writing as authoritative. Part of this tied in with the Protestant appeal, the evangelical appeal to sola scriptura. So basically the argument was the scripture nowhere speaks directly about contraception. And since the scripture is our only guide, how could it be forbidden? And with that logic, they jettisoned 450 years of Protestant teaching as well as 19 centuries of church consensus. Now the Catholic church, was much slower than Protestant churches. And in fact, they still stand against contraception, although recently Pope Francis has made some statements sort of softening up on this. But they were under intense pressure to change their stand. However, in 1968, Pope Paul VI surprised everyone by reaffirming the historical church stand and further defining it with his presentation of Humanae Vitae. So I'll just read a, a little bit out of Humanae Vitae. This is, it's from the Catholic Church, but yet in spite of that, it's a rather profound piece of writing, I think. And he said this in defense of his, of the Catholic Church's stand against artificial contraception. This particular doctrine often expounded by the magisterium of the church is based on the inseparable connection established by God which man on his own initiative may not break between the unitive significance and procreative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. The reason is that the fundamental nature of the marriage act by uniting husband and wife in the closest intimacy also renders them capable of generating new life. And this as a result of laws written into the actual nature of man and woman. And it, if each of these essential qualities, the unitive and the procreative is preserved, the use of marriage 
fully retains its sense of true mutual love and its ordination to the supreme responsibility of parenthood to which man is called. Consequences of artificial methods. Responsible men can become more deeply convinced of the truth of the doctrine laid down by the church on this issue if they reflect on the consequences of methods and plans for artificial birth control. Let them first consider how easily this course of action could open wide the way for marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. Another effect that gives cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires, no longer considering her as his partner whom he should surround with care and affection. So what's the big deal? Does this really matter? Is there anything to what he is saying? Now, I'll confess to you that I married because I was in love with a girl. And I can't say that I really wanted to be responsible for children. I knew when I got married that was a likely consequence, one that would come, but it wasn't one that I was really looking forward to. Somehow in the first month of our marriage, I got convicted about this issue of contraception. I can't remember exactly how that happened. And therefore, by the time we had been married for 10 months and 12 days, the Lord had fulfilled his promise to us in blessing us with this sweet little girl. So I want to give him thanks and praise for that. And I did not know yet that the pill can cause abortions. So Randy Alcorn has written a book on this and he explains it this way. So the pill, one of the most common forms of abortion is a contraceptive pill taken by women. And its primary function is that it suppresses ovulation, but it doesn't always work. It actually has three mechanisms for avoiding pregnancy. It thickens the cervical mucus, making it more difficult for sperm to get through and for conception to happen. It's method number two. But if that doesn't work, it prevents implantation of a fertilized egg by thinning the lining of the uterus. So if method number one and number two don't work, and an egg is fertilized in spite of those two functions, then the fertilized egg may not be implanted because the uterus is not prepared for it. In that case, a human life that has begun by a egg being fertilized is ended. Now, how do we know this happens? Well, we know that some babies are conceived and born in spite of their mothers being on the pill. There's a certain percentage of rate of failure. So if a baby is conceived and born, that means that number one has failed means that number two has failed. It means that number three has failed. But that also means that number three, in other cases, has worked. And in that case, the pill would be functioning as an abortifacient. And in fact, this may even be common. You know, I consider it tragic to think about how many women may meet their children in heaven whom, who were not born because they were on the pill and they had no idea what the consequence could be. Randy Alcorn said that talk, he talked to many doctors about this and almost all agreed with, with the logic here that the pill can sometimes cause abortions, except for Christian doctors. There was a group that signed a, peti uh, a petition without citing any studies against this and said there was no evidence for this being the case. And it seemed rather clear it's, they did not want to accept the consequences of losing this method of prescribing birth control. So that brings us to a question. Could we have known better? So could we, could we have known not to go on something like the pill even without knowing that it could cause abortions? And I believe the answer to this question is yes. But the only way that we could have known better is if we stood against unnatural birth control because our understanding of ethics taught us that we should. Now it doesn't stop there. 
Um, so the, the pill is perhaps the most obvious form of birth control that can be um, causing abortions. Uh, but there is some evidence, and I, I don't think the evidence is super strong here, but some studies have shown that other methods also carry risks to an infant. Uh, according to one study, barrier methods such as condoms, diaphragms, etc., more than double the rate of preeclampsia during pregnancy. The theory is that certain proteins in the husband's semen signal the wife's immune system not to attack the baby in her uterus. Uh, it's also possible that spermicidal foams and jellies, other methods of birth control, may possibly cause birth defects in babies. So there are some, some medical risks associated with unnatural birth control. But let's look at what the Bible teaches and see if we can build a positive case for how we should think about this in marriage. What can we learn from Scripture? Creation mandate, Genesis 1.28, God said, be fruitful and multiply. God loves children. God loves people to multiply. Malachi 3.18, did he not make them one? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. So according to Malachi here, the reason that God created the marriage union is that he seeks godly offspring. Now, I think we can understand this is a primary reason, and many things have secondary and tertiary reasons. There's a lot more reasons to get married than just to have children. Um, but often those secondary reasons derive their meaning from the primary reasons. God wanted godly seed. He wanted, uh, he wanted living beings to serve and worship and honor him. And to achieve that, he gave humans a role in the creative process. We get to work together with God in this project of creating godly seed. So he created sexual attraction and sexual pleasure for us to experience and out of that to come offspring. And we're rather selfish as humans. Because of that, probably few would sign up for the difficulty of child rearing unless it was tied in with some other things that are strongly desired. Most of us wouldn't just pick to have 10 children dropped off at our house someday and have to take care of them from then on. So God created the family to be a safe, stable place to raise children. He created sexual expression and love to strengthen the commitment and affection between a husband and a wife. Now, I think if we think ethically about this, we, sh we could understand that this comes as a package. Okay, there's a uh, sexual expression and love, the unity of husband and wife, come as a package with the raising of children, the rearing up of a godly seed. And while it's not wrong for people who can't have children, maybe because they're too old, to get married, what is ethically problematic is for a man to choose to take a part of the package that he desires, but not another part that he doesn't want. I think we could call that trying to have your cake and eat it too. You want one part of what God has for you, but not another. And that's really what Onan did in scripture. You're probably familiar with the story. His brother Onan and Shelah were two sons of Judah who did not raise up children to their brother Ur. However, Shelah was not killed. Onan was. The reason that he was killed was because he used Tamar for his own pleasure, but without fulfilling the responsibilities that were supposed to attend it. So his crime was worse than Sheila's, who simply didn't raise up children through not marrying his brother's widow. The Psalms tell us that the Lord gives children as a reward. Lo, children are inherited from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. Psalm 127.3. Can you imagine God showing up on your doorstep with a gift and you saying, no, I don't think I'll take that gift. I'd rather not have that one. Psalm 128.3 promises to the faithful. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. 
First Timothy 2.15 has a good promise. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, this is a debated verse. I think the most likely interpretation is that he's saying a woman fulfills her responsibility to God through childbearing. She doesn't have to worry about the fact that she can't go and preach publicly in the church. And a woman might say, well, what am I doing for God? Well, if she is bearing children, raising them to be godly, she is walking in God's will for her and she'll be saved through childbearing. There are other interpretations that could also be correct for that verse. So, God, for his purposes, has bound up sexual pleasure and the responsibility of having children together. If we intentionally separate them, we lose much of our basis for sexual morality. Does that seem unlikely? Does that seem like a statement that's really going out on a limb? Well, the 1960s is the the era that's most associated with the sexual revolution. Suddenly, many things in Western society began to change. And everyone agrees that somehow around the 1960s, Christianity in the West kind of went over a cliff. 1960 is also the year that the pill became widely available. So if we look at this chart here, it's, it's hard to say what are the direct effects of things like the pill. But you can see how divorces suddenly began to rise in the 1960s. It could be that... Um, as people turned more and more to contraception, marriage became more and more about, about fulfillment. And the next obvious step is if my marriage is not fulfilling, perhaps it's time to terminate it. As religious observance weakened to the 1960s, families weakened also. Here's a chart showing how out of wedlock, out of wedlock births have risen since about 5% in 1960 to over 40% today. How did contraception influence the sexual revolution? It created sex without consequence. So it made it much easier for people to have sex outside of the marriage bonds. For many, it has caused the focus of marriage to be on the satisfaction of the partners rather than the stability of the family unit. With emphasis on the family unit lessened, divorce rises. We begin to think about um, sexuality and marriage as about gratification. And it opened the door to other forms of sexual expression. So what do I mean by that? Well, here's what a former Archbishop of Canterbury named Robert Runcie said in defense of his decision to ordain homosexual men to the ministry. He said, once the church signaled that sexual activity was for human delight and a blessing, even if it was divorced from any idea of procreation, once you've said that sexual activity is pleasing to God in itself, then what about people who are engaged in same-sex expression and who are incapable of heterosexual expression? Stop my screen share there. Another arch, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said this. In a church which accepts the legitimacy of contraception, the absolute condemnation of same-sex relations of intimacy must either rely on an abstract fundamentalist deployment of a number of very ambiguous texts, or on a problematic and non-scriptural theory about natural complementarity narrow, applied narrowly and crudely to physical differences without regard to psychological structures. So his logic here is that if sexual expression can be about fulfill, fulfillment separated from the possibility of children, then a large component of the argument for reserving sexual intercourse to marriage between a man and a woman is lost. 
Once the deliberate cultivation of the sexual union as an end in itself is allowed, a huge defense for traditional Christian marriage expectations has been lost. Suddenly what becomes important is the physical relationship in marriage. So while the Bible is the bastion against homosexuality and can always be appealed to, we can always find scriptures and show what, what the Bible says. From a logical standpoint, if sex can be divorced from procreation, all the arguments about why heterosexual sex is pleasing to God and homosexual sex is not are weakened. Once sex can be an end in itself about unity and pleasure, the door swings open to people who feel that they can only find unity and pleasure in ways that have nothing to do with procreation. So that is um, my apologetic for um, how um, changing sex from the purpose that it was designed um, changes our views about it and weakens uh, the Bible's teaching across the board. Now, there is a method that does not compromise sex as God designed it. That's the rhythm method. And, of course, those who have accepted unnatural birth control will laugh at that. So, to quote Tim LaHaye, he said, We often jokingly note in our family lectures that couples who use the rhythm method are called parents. The cost of the rhythm method is upwards of 1000 per pregnancy, but it yields the wonderful blessing of children. So, Tim LaHaye didn't seem to think that was a, a real great method. Um, and, you know, this is something that's difficult to talk about because it's very personal and um, it's also rather difficult. And one reason that um, I would rather not give this, this talk is because uh, once you go on record as having said something, then you're sort of obligated to, to, um, stick with it or else you have to sort of humbly admit that you've changed your mind. Um, I have tried to change my mind a few times on this and haven't succeeded yet. So it seems like I'm stuck with it. Um, this is, but I do want to note that this, this has to be a personal conviction. I don't want to uh, put my convictions on other people because uh, in many ways, what I'm suggesting here is a path of difficulty. And every man has to stand before God on his own faith. Um, I'd like to, to read what Humane Vitae said about the natural methods for avoiding pregnancy. If therefore there are well-grounded reasons for spacing births, arising from the physical or psychological condition of husband or wife, or from external circumstances, the church teaches that married people may then take advantage of the natural cycles imminent in the reproductive system and engage in marital intercourse only during those times that are infertile, thus controlling birth in a way which, which does not, in the least, offend the moral principles which we have just explained. Neither the church nor her doctrine is inconsistent when she considers it lawful for married people to take advantage of the infertile period but condemns as always unlawful the, the use of means which directly prevent conception, even when the reasons given for the later practice may appear upright and serious. In reality, these two cases are completely different. In the former, the married couple rightly use a faculty provided them by nature. In the later, they obstruct the natural development of the generative process. So again, this is getting into deep ethical questions. We don't necessarily have clear scriptures that say specific things about this, but I do believe that there are deep spiritual mysteries here. Marriage is to represent Christ in the church. The close sexual union is to represent our close relationship with God. I believe that the physical joining of husband and wife and their intimate sharing of their very selves is to picture something in our relationship with God. I think that perhaps the sexual union and its joys is to picture our close connection to God, perhaps that we find in worship with him, in union with him, 
in communion with him? Do you want to put a barrier into the midst of that embrace to barricade something that God intended? As the sexual relationship pictures the husband and wife, and as the sexual relationship pictures our relationship to God, do you want to put a barrier between yourself and communion with God? If God designed the pleasure of marital love to be tied to the rearing of children, then trying to separate those two, as I said, is like trying to have your cake and eat it too. So now I'd like to give a few words of admonition. And if he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Some couples want to get married but put off having children. Okay, how should we think about this? I better plug my computer in here, it's going to die. Well, I would like to suggest that maybe if you aren't ready to have children, you aren't ready to get married. Now, some people, some couples keep family size small so they can do ministry. As I attempted to show earlier, as faith and family are tied together, maybe we need to be aware that weakening the family is weakening the church and hurting ministry in the long term. Uh, here's an interesting testimony. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. She was the 25th of 25 children. So if she hadn't, if her mother hadn't had 25 children, actually the man may have had two wives. I'm not totally sure about that, but I couldn't find any evidence of that. We wouldn't have John and Charles Wesley. Was their family um, well taken care of? Her husband, Samuel Wesley, spent time in jail twice due to his poor financial abilities and the lack of money was a continual struggle. And Susanna had 19 children. Had she not had 15, she would not have had John Wesley. Had she not had 18 children, she would not have had Charles Wesley. They were number 15 and 18 in her family. She impacted the world far more through her children than many a mother who has restricted her family size for the sake of ministry. Now, for those who want to forgo the responsibilities of children, so that they can serve the Lord in ways that those who must care for children cannot, there is a biblical path. Paul speaks of that in 1 Corinthians 7.32. He said, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. So what about the singles among us who can't get married for various reasons? One of my burdens about this subject is for them. If, if we set up marriage as an idol, where it becomes about privilege, a lot about privilege and a little about pain. If marriage becomes a place of privilege and does not automatically carry with it this the sacred duty and self-denial of having children, then singles have to carry a disproportionate burden of suffering for the kingdom. I really feel that if, if married people can have their cake and eat it too, so to speak, that removes the dignity of suffering singlehood. I feel like um, we need to, to elevate the position of singlehood among us um, for those who cannot get married and let that be a place of honor. The church must be an institution that welcomes families and that sees caring for them as a God-honoring and spiritual work. It's been acceptable since the days of Paul to see this single life as being more spiritual. But we must not allow the idea that married while avoiding children is a spiritual path, or I believe the health and vitality of our churches is at stake. And similarly, if we think it's acceptable to limit family size for mere convenience so that we can have an RV or a boat or a house on the lake, I believe that we strike a death blow to the self-denial that is the very heart of Christianity. The poor Christians of third world countries whose large families are huddled in small, cold houses will be our judges. Now, one reason that this is hard to talk about is because of the hard situations. 
and a lot of questions can be asked. What about those who have genetic conditions? What about health issues where pregnancy would be a terrible risk? What about those under oppressive regimes that have draconian policies about birth control, such as China? Well, I can say that these things have to be taken before God. They have to be prayed about. We need God to give us faith and show us how to walk. And I will say that if there are exceptions, they do not define the rule. We must remember that they are just that. They are exceptions. We must take them before God with fear and trembling and knowledge of what the Bible teaches and what the church has historically taught. So I'm here to cry out for an alternative society where children are wanted. God can limit family size. Often he does. Many people have had God only open the womb once or twice or three times. God bless you if that's where you are. God has a plan for you. And may you live for God in whatever state he has called you. I propose that accepting God's will about this will lead to stronger churches and more kingdom growth than otherwise. The family of God will be strong if the nuclear family is strong. So that's what I have to share. And I'm open for questions. Well, Philip, thanks a lot for sharing your heart. Um, <clears throat> like you said, it's very personal. And I'm sure it's very, it's, very it's very personal for you to share. And yeah, this whole subject, it gets very personal into our lives, maybe more than we would like it to, I think. Um, yeah. Thought-provoking. What questions do you have, anyone? We'll give you a few minutes. We're already after the hour, so it probably won't last real long. But if you have any questions that I think Philip is opening himself up. Thank you. And um, one of the things I've been meditating personally on recently on this subject is uh, I've been humbled by the fact that sexuality, uh, in the gift of sexuality, God is allowing human beings to toy with his image. And um, I use the word toy because um, that's the way, that's how frivolous most of society is re relating to it. And I also think that that has something to do with the seriousness of fornication and adultery because we're again toying with the image of God. And um, I found that very, very, very humbling that God has given human beings the privilege to enter in to, in the co-creation of his own image. Because that's very clear that he made us in his own image, male and female, made he them, in his own image. And that is reinforced uh, all through scripture, that idea of his image. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. God has filled the world with wonder and mystery. Hold on. Yeah, I want to thank you also for um, sharing. Um, a lot of people have, uh, or a few people have mentioned in the chat, uh, thanks for, for sharing. And um, yeah, it's not a topic that I have ever heard before, I don't think. 
And uh, so, yeah, a lot of uh, food for thought. So thank you. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks again, Philip. The, the, the time is seven oh six. I think it's time to be closing this down. Um, would you, Philip? Would you lead us in a, a prayer yet here at the end before we close? Yes, certainly. Heavenly Father, you are wonderful. You are wise. You are kind. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of spiritual life. Thank you for the gift of natural life. Help us to use the life that you have given us to glorify you. Father, uh, the things that we've talked about this morning are deeply personal. And the answers are not always easy. But you have a call upon our lives to be men and women of faith. And each person must walk before you in faith and show us what that looks like for each one's life. Show us how to glorify you, whether it be through our families and raising children or our ministries that we do in addition, in addition to that. And for the singles, Lord, who have to, um, who don't get to express their sexuality to anyone, um, you too have given them precious gifts and help them to use the creative energy that you have given to them for your kingdom and for your glory. Help us all to glorify your name. Please have mercy on us because we're weak and we need your grace and help. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again for sharing, Philip. And thank you all for joining. Um, look forward to seeing you next week. And we'll keep you posted on the topic and speaker. God bless you all. God bless you.